Well, good morning, you guys. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. If you just want to take a deep breath with me, I'm just so glad to be here with you this morning. Yeah, so good to be here, Fairfax. I'm David. I'm the media director here at Fairfax. I'm super nervous. So if I stumble, it's your guy's fault, basically. <laughs> so... Yeah, thank you for being here. There's a lot of things going on here at church. Uh, and one of the ways that you can connect with everything without missing anything uh, is through the QR codes that is, uh, there are in the blue seats. So you're invited to scan those codes. Uh, and also you can visit our website at fairfax.cc where we, you can find everything we're going to say now and even more. So yeah. And you guys know me. Hi, I'm Kayla. Um, if you guys are online, you have it easy. So everything that we're about to share with you guys is going to be right in the link in the chat. Um, so hello, everybody watching online. Um, everything that we're about to share with you guys is traditionally known as announcements, right? These are PSAs for our church community. But guys, that's not what these are. These are really just to let you guys know what's going on in this family, what's going on in this church community. There's a lot of things that we want you to be a part of that are outside of this Sunday service. So the first two things that I have for you guys are for parents. Um, parents, listen up. So the first thing is this Friday, I know you guys probably already have plans, but this is something that you you are going to want to make time for this Friday, which is October 7th at 7 p.m. Our amazing Fairfax Kids team is hosting this workshop and it's called Parenting in a Tech World. And this is in response to what they're seeing and the questions that you guys are asking. And they wanted to create a no judgment, totally interactive event where you guys get to come together with other parents and you guys will get grouped into parents who also have kids of the same age group and you'll get to ask the questions that maybe you don't know who to ask of, hey, how do I teach my kid to have a good relationship with technology? How do I set good boundaries for my children? What does that even look like? Because everything is totally different than when you were a kid, all of those things. Anyway, so if you are looking for a community of people to talk about that with, Fairfax Kids Team is saying, let's talk about it. So if you want to sign up for that event, you can do that. Registration is on our events page. And the second family event is Trunk or Treat. Trunk or Treat is back y'all. I am so excited. It's one of my favorite events of the year and it has nothing to do with my ministry, but it's so fun. Um, our team always hosts a trunk and we never win, um, but that's okay. We're there for a good time. Yes. You know, we're always there to be cozy. So Trunk or Treat is an opportunity not only for us to all get together and to have fun, but it's also the perfect time for you to invite that person, invite that friend, invite whoever, invite your neighbors. Last year, we had over 800 people attend this event. Praise God. Wow. Um, and just have fun together and just be in community with one another. So you can either register to attend that event or you can register to host a trunk with us, which would be great. So you can register for that online as well. Yeah, I want to be there. You will be there. You have to be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Resource Center launched this new project called uh, Make a Red Back Month. And it's been amazing, guys. Uh, we were able to be the miracle that so many families needed in this season, in this community. So if you want to still be a part of this project, you can. You have time until October 9th. Uh, so if you're in interested in, in serving in that way, uh, there's a shopping list that you can find in the lobby, or also you can uh, visit the website uh, where you can find many ways to be a part of this project and just be Jesus in this community. Um, so yeah. Okay, so we have a special announcement, and that's the whole reason why I'm here. 
Uh, and the way that we're going to do is something different, because I'm going to start talking in español. ¿Ok? Me están todos los latinos acá, a ver. ¿Por qué? Porque se viene un evento especial que se llama Fairfax Celebra. Fairfax Celebra es un evento, es una fiesta, básicamente, eh, que creamos para poder celebrar a todos aquellos con orígenes latinos o que se identifican con el lenguaje español como primero o segundo lenguaje. Así que queremos invitarlos, va a ser una fiesta increíble con mucha comida, va a haber música, va a haber baile, va a haber pachanga para todos los que les guste. Así que queremos invitarlos, va a ser el... 4 de noviembre, viernes 4 de noviembre a las 7 pm. Así que queremos invitarlos, va a ser increíble. Como va a ser una fiesta bilingüe, le voy a decirlo en inglés. So, what David is saying, David and I have been planning this for so long, we've been so excited, but this is an event that is called Fairfax Celebra, and it is for our Spanish-speaking community, our Hispanic community here at Fairfax. Um, you guys, we are both so honored to be part of that community, and we just want to create a space where everyone can come together and just be celebrated for who they are, where they come from, and what better way to do that than to all just come together with music, with dance, and most importantly, with food. Yes. Um, so that is going to be on Friday, November 4th, here at the church at 7 p.m. Así es. Una de las cosas que también va a pasar ese día es que el formato va a ser como si fuese un picnic, pero acá adentro. ¿Por qué? Porque queremos que todos puedan experimentar un poco de nuestras raíces, de nuestros orígenes. Así que la idea es que cada uno de ustedes, los que quieran venir, puedan traer un poco de comida, pueden traer algo para compartir. Así lo hacemos entre todos. Pueden traer un rico pollo peruano, un asado argentino, unas pupusas salvadoreñas, lo que sea. Pero traigamos algo para compartir, así hacemos de esto una fiesta de las naciones. Okay, so this is going to be, for those of you that speak English, this is a potluck style. So what that means is that we're all going to be bringing something from our family of origin, from our country of origin, to just come and to share with everyone else and just get to enjoy. So whatever that means for you, so it could be pollo peruano, it could be pupusas salvadoreñas, it could be tortilla española, it could be whatever you bring from Argentina, I don't know. Yes. Um, but whatever it is, it's going to be amazing. But because of that, we need you to register. So we want to know what you're going to bring, and we want to know how many people you're going to bring with you. You can bring as many people as you want, but we just got to know. So. Sí, cuando se registren, el registro va a ser en, la, en nuestra website, que es fairfax.cc barra events. Eh, y ahí les vamos a pedir, por favor, que aclaren qué es lo que van a traer. Así sabemos cuánta cantidad de comida hay, qué es lo que hay. Así sabemos que todos pueden comer y pueden probar algo de nuestra tierra. Así que los invitamos, no se lo pierdan. Inviten al vecino, a la vecina, al perro, al gato, a todos, porque va a ser increíble. David just invited every single person and their dog and their cat to come to this event. So um, you should come. You should please register. Just let us know. But invite everybody, even if they're not part of this community and they're looking for a place to be celebrated for who they are um, and where they come from, um, this is the place to be. So no please see us there. We're so excited. So. Estar buenísimo. Exacto. Yeah. So, yeah. So we love you guys so much. Um, I just want to encourage you guys with one last thing before we go. So we are so grateful, especially, but the entire church, we're so grateful for your generosity, for the ways that you trust God um, with your finances, with the way that you use your time, with even just showing up here today or watching online, tuning in. Guys, all of those things, we couldn't do any of this without you guys. And we're just so grateful that we get to do it, not only because of you, but also with you. I just want to encourage you guys this morning with a passage I've been 
reading through a lot of scripture lately um, with my schooling, but specifically I wanted to share a passage um, from Matthew 20, and it's about when two blind men receive their sight. So when Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, there was a huge crowd forming, makes sense, but there were two blind men who were sitting on the roadside and they heard that Jesus was coming by and they said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And there was a huge crowd still and people were telling them to be quiet and they persisted and they said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And then Jesus stopped and he called to them and he said, what do you want me to do? And that's when they said, Lord, we specifically, we want our sight. And that is the moment that Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. I know a lot of you are wondering, what does that have to do with my finances? What does that have to do with my circumstances? And there's a couple of things that we can learn from these men in these passages. Number one is to pray persistently, to ask persistently. And number two is to ask and to pray specifically. Jesus healed the two men when they specifically said, Lord, we specifically want our sight back. Yes, we want you to have mercy on us, but we want our sight. And Jesus was immediately compassionate to heal them. If you guys are looking for something in your finances and you don't know what it looks like to trust God in that, or like Bree was saying, you don't know what it actually means to release that and you don't know how you're gonna determine whether releasing your finances to God is gonna do anything, I encourage you to pray something specific this week. I have a car saga going on right now where I basically bought the worst car in the world. No, I will not tell you what car it is. Um, but I have just been struggling because I care so much about stewarding my finances well and doing something that's in line with what God wants for my life. And I have just been praying and I've had no idea what to do to fix this car. And this week I prayed specific and I prayed bold. And I said, God, can you do something for me? Um, and I asked him specifically, and that's when I began to see where he began to move. So I just want to encourage you. I know it's scary. I know it can be disappointing sometimes when we feel like we're opening ourselves up to disappointment of what God may or may not do. But I want to encourage you, if you want to see God move, especially in something that doesn't feel spiritual like finances, pray boldly, pray consistently, and pray specifically. I hope that encouraged you guys this morning. Thank you so much again for your generosity and everything that you do to pour into this place financially or otherwise. Um, but other than that, that's all we have for you. Last weekend was an amazing weekend. It was baptism weekend. We got to celebrate lives yes. raised to life in Christ. And my good friend here, David, made a recap video for it. So you guys can go ahead and check it out.
Come on. So awesome what God is doing uh, in this church. And uh, just thinking about as we were looking at those faces, every face is a unique story of God's grace that is a miracle in and of itself of how people come to faith. And uh, we're just so thankful to be a church that is focused on transformation and on the gospel and on lives being raised to life in Christ. And that's ultimately what we uh, are all about and want to live out. And uh, so we're thankful for what God is doing. Um, David, great job. I told you that in first service. Great job. I mentioned him in first service that this is all a part of a great master plan to get David up to preach. And uh, yeah. Let's just just do a little poll. How many of you think that would be a really good idea to get David up? All right. All right. Good, good, good. So David said, I'll do it if I can do it in Spanish. And uh, you do it in English, I'll translate into Spanish. So that will not happen. Neither of those, maybe. So um, I just got back from Paris, and uh, there's, a, there's a group, there's a church there that we helped to start a number of years ago that's called At Home. That is a church that um, was formed to um, be a church for and of refugees and immigrants. And it's amazing what God is doing. And I'm on a board um, that uh, serves that church, and we meet twice a year. And the highlight, um, for the last year or so, the highlight of that has been um, going to the the home that has been um, secured by the church that is a community space uh, a common living space for refugees and immigrants. It's a, it's a living out of this idea that the kingdom of God is about people from different backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities, uh, differentness in every way, being able to come around the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, the home was started about a year ago, and it's been this amazing experiment in some respects that has just been an opportunity for God to work in some incredible ways. And I had a couple of pictures I wanted to show you of uh, some folks that are part of this. So uh, on the left is um, Mona, and Mona is from Egypt. And next to her is Gadir. Gadir is from Iraq. And uh, Nico is in the orange. uh, And he is from uh, Kuwait. And Parisa is uh, over on the right. And uh, she is from Iran. And they are part of a larger group that lives in this home. I think we have a picture of the, everyone who is a part of, of this home and a few other folks that were there that night. We always come together for a common meal whenever we're there. And it's this amazing expression of the kingdom that um, I'm just always 
overwhelmed by. I think seven different um, countries that are represented, um, many more than that, languages that are represented, people that come from uh, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different religions uh, who have all come together around the person of Jesus Christ and have become followers of Jesus Christ and have been, as we celebrated last week, have been raised to life in Christ. And I just celebrate, you're a part of that, I know from a distance, but this church has been at the center of this, this church in Paris um, coming into existence. And we talk about the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that uh, his will would be done and his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, in Fairfax as it is in heaven, in Paris as it is in heaven. And every time I'm in this place, I get a little glimpse of what uh, heaven on earth looks like. And growingly within our church community and what God is doing here, and some of that we talked about uh, earlier today uh, with uh, what Kayla and David were talking about, um, I see the kingdom of God in Fairfax just as it is in heaven. And I just rejoice at what God is doing. Um, okay, so we're starting uh, this weekend a new study in the book of uh, Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. It's a nine-week study. We're calling it Kings and Prophets. And the book of 1 Samuel chronicles the rise and fall of King Saul, the rise of King David, but before he actually became king, and the life of the prophet Samuel, who God uses to identify, anoint, and counsel both of those kings. And the events in the book of Samuel take place as the time of the judges is coming to an end. And the time of the judges was a period of anarchy, uh, basically anarchy in Israel. Judges 21-25 says, in those days Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. If you want chaos, that'll give you chaos. Everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. And so the people of Israel cried out for a king. And this is where this all began. And God granted their request. But as the people of Israel soon found out, leadership is both absolutely necessary and potentially incredibly destructive. So 1 Samuel serves as this kind of poignant reminder of the responsibilities and the characteristics of good leadership, but it also addresses the inevitable pitfalls of leadership. And it's a practical guide for anyone who's serious about living out God's calling on their lives. And the book begins by giving us kind of a backstory behind the three main leaders that are highlighted in the book. And the backstory revolves around a woman by the name of Hannah. And if it wasn't for Hannah, the rest of the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, would not have taken place. She's the behind-the-scenes leader that God uses uh, to precede and kind of set the stage for the three more visible leaders that are to come on the scene. And when we first encounter Hannah, she's a woman in deep pain. And this is what we're told, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramatham, the Zufite, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, 
son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, one called Hannah and the other called Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. That's Peninnah. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she cried and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, to really understand Hannah's pain, you have to understand the culture that she lived in and what that culture valued. Because for a woman in Hannah's culture, the bearing of children was one of the highest values in the culture. And it wasn't just a matter of personal fulfillment. It wasn't just a desire to be a mom or a desire to have a family. It was, in a very real sense, a life and death issue. First of all, a family's income, the ability to accumulate wealth, was determined by the number of children that they had. The more children they had, potentially the wealthier they became. Unlike today, uh, where <laughs> the more children you have, <laughs> the poorer you become. <laughs> Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, I knew that would be the spiritual highlight of this message, would be that realization. But in an agrarian society, the more children that you had, the more you could produce, and the more livestock that you could own, and the more wealth you could accumulate. Secondly, this was a culture with no social safety net for people as they aged. No social security, no 401ks, no IRAs, no pension funds, none of that. So if you were going to avoid starving to death as you got older, you needed adult children who could take care of you. And for two parents, they needed about four adult kids to adequately take care of them. That, that's true for Social Security as well, and that's not working so well. But anyway, uh, and with the high mortality rates, number of kids that died in childbirth, number of kids that never made it to adulthood, if you were going to have four adult children, you needed to have about 10 kids. That's just the way the numbers kind of worked out. And thirdly, having a large family wasn't just a life and death issue for the family, it was a life and death issue for the nation. The prosperity of a nation, its ability to raise up an army, to defend itself against enemies, all of that was closely tied to its birth rate. So in Hannah's culture, women who could not bear children were considered to have very little value in society. And as a woman bearing children, since that is what gave you your life and your meaning and your purpose. Like that became your identity. And when that did not happen or could not happen, it, it took away 
hope. Theologian and author Walter Brueggemann says that in ancient culture, barrenness was a metaphor for hopelessness. To be barren, he said, was to be without hope. Now, of course, as we look at this through our 21st century Western culture eyes, we immediately recoil and say, how awful. Like, how awful to have a woman's value in culture based on how many kids that she can have. And it, and it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But the awfulness hasn't gone away just because it's 2022. It's just been replaced by a different kind of awfulness. Today, a woman's value in culture may not be determined by the number of kids that she has or whether she even has children or not, but her value in culture may be determined by the academic degrees that she gets and the school that she got them from. Now it may be determined by the kind of job that she has and the amount of money that she makes and her vocational trajectory. Now it may be determined by how she looks and what kind of clothes that she wears. And it's not just true for women, it's also true for men. Everyone, everyone, everyone is a product of their culture and tends to internalize what the culture says is important. And in a culture that says money and success and accomplishment and status and beauty are the most important things, we tend to be valued by others and in many cases, if we're honest, to value ourselves on the basis of that. So because Hannah could not provide the very thing her culture valued her on the basis of, she was in excruciating pain. And to make matters worse, Peninnah, Elkanah's other wife, Elkanah's other wife, who was able to have children, mocks Hannah mercilessly for not being able to have kids. So much so that we're told in verse 10 that Hannah wept and was filled with bitterness of soul, a phrase that's used to describe deep and abiding suffering and pain. By the way, uh, just as an aside, uh, if you think that the Bible presents polygamy because Elkanah had two wives, and there are other stories in Scripture where you see characters that have more than one wife, if you think the Bible presents polygamy as a viable option, just know, just know that there's no place in Scripture where a polygamous family is portrayed as healthy. <laughs> like there are always, every story, every story where we see it, there is always levels, profound levels of dysfunction and toxicity. So polygamy is definitely not a biblically endorsed idea, just in case you were wondering. Now, Hannah's husband tries his best. Bless his heart. That's what you say when someone tries, but it's not so awesome. Bless your heart. Bless his heart. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, he tries. He tries his best to ease Hannah's pain by showing her extra attention. For instance, when they would go to the tabernacle and Elkanah would give, he would give Hannah a double portion of the meat that was left over 
that was sacrificed at the temple. Whenever we would take animals to sacrifice at the temple, there was always, or the tabernacle, there was always uh, meat that was left over. And he would give a double portion of that to Hannah. And he told her that his love for her should mean more to her. My love for you, Hannah, should mean more to you than 10 sons. I don't understand why you're crying because my love for you should mean more than 10 sons. Now, here's the deal. Given the realities of the culture, where husbands would often reject, abandon their wives for not producing children, it wasn't the worst response that Elkanah could have. But it wasn't awesome either. Because he was just asking Hannah to trade the idolatry of family for the idolatry of his love. Hannah realizes that Elkanah is just offering her another form of hope based on what someone else values. Elkanah is basically saying, your hope, Hannah, is not rooted in whether or not you have kids. Your hope is rooted in whether or not I love you. And I do love you. So that should be enough to bring you hope. But what if Elkanah stops loving her? What if he becomes embarrassed by the fact that she can't have children? What if he changes his mind? Does that mean that all hope is gone? Does that mean that she is no longer a person of value and worth? So what does Hannah do? Well, to her credit, and out of wisdom <laughs> that is in her heart, in the midst of her pain, Hannah does something that every godly leader, everyone who wants to live out God's calling in their life should do. She decides to take all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the confusion that she is experiencing to take it to God in prayer. Now, I know that that sounds like the Sunday school answer to like everything. Just pray about it. But it's the kind of prayer that she prays that I want you to focus on. Take a look, starting in verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. So Caleb was talking about being specific in prayer. She is very specific in her prayer. And no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought that she had been drinking. Eli thought that she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer or anything. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what 
you have asked for. Now, I want you to notice three things about the prayer that Hannah prays. The first is this. Hannah's prayer was incredibly emotionally vulnerable. In verse 10, it says that Hannah wept and she she cried in, she prayed in bitterness of soul. In fact, Hannah's so overwhelmed by the emotions of the whole thing that she's going through that at times while she was praying, her lips are moving, but nothing is coming out of her mouth. There are no words that is coming out of her mouth. The hurt was so deep, she couldn't even form the words to express the pain. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Probably you have. I know that I have experienced that at times, where I've gone through something that is so hurtful, so painful, so confusing, where it's so hard to connect the dots, and the hurt is so deep, or the fear is so deep that Even when I want to pray, I simply do not have the words. I do not have the words to express it to God. And you've probably had a similar kind of experience. In the New Testament, Paul talks about when we get to these moments where where we are feeling so deeply something that we want to take to the Lord, but we are so profoundly hurt or we've experienced such profound loss that the words just do not come. Paul talks about how the spirit intercedes for our spirit in those moments with groanings that are deeper than words can give expression to, that are more profound than any words that you could speak in English or Spanish or Farsi, or Arabic, or French, or whatever. Like God intercedes, his spirit intercedes, and that is what's happening with Hannah. Hannah is a great example of how God has designed us to handle our emotions. You know, in culture, um, the culture tends to see only two Options for how you handle your emotions. Uh, either you stuff your emotions and you just keep all of the anger and all of the hurt and all of the sadness inside. I was talking to someone today who said, I grew up in that kind of environment, in that kind of home, in that kind of setting, even that kind of church where that was just kind of what you did with emotions. You just kind of stuffed your anger and your sadness and your hurt, which, which never works ultimately because it, it destroys us on the inside while we're trying to pretend like everything is okay. And then when the emotion finally does come out, and it always comes out, when it finally does come out, it comes out in a really unhealthy and toxic way. Or we go the other extreme and we just are constantly venting our emotions. We just are regularly vomiting up our emotions on the people who are closest to us, vomiting up emotions that are unfiltered, that are generally negative, and that often are life-draining for the people that we love. But the Bible offers a third option, and that is to pray 
our emotions, to pour them out to God like, like David does in the Psalms. The, the, all of the Psalms are basically expressions of David and others that are emotional highs and emotional lows that are poured out before the Lord. And it's what Hannah does. She prays her emotion. She expresses to God what is really going on on the inside. And here's the great thing about praying our emotions, is that when we pray our emotions, we don't have to worry about measuring our words. We don't have to worry about being too negative. We don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. We don't have to worry about our tone and how we're saying it. We don't have to worry about catching someone at the wrong time. We're just like, oh, this isn't the perfect time to actually share that. And maybe there's a better time. But we don't have to worry about all of that because God is the perfect listener <laughs> and he can handle all the emotions that we throw at him. Now, it's important to say, I think, at this point, that prayer is not a substitute for expressing our feelings to others. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. It's not, well, I share my feelings with God, so I don't need to share them with you. I share my feelings with God, I don't need to share them with anyone else. I share my feelings with God, and that's good enough. That will leave you isolated. That will leave you alone. Prayer is the chance to share your feelings with the one who knows you best and loves you the most. And any counselor or friend who loves you and loves Jesus will tell you, I'm available for you. I want to be able to talk. I want to be someone that you can talk to, but please don't substitute my presence for God's presence in your life because you need both. The second thing is this. Hannah's prayer changed from a me-centered prayer to a God-centered prayer. Look at verse 11 again. O oh Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, to be a priest, to serve in the tabernacle, you had to be from a certain tribe. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. But if you were not from the tribe of Levi, there were provisions so that you could become a kind of lay priest. And one of those provisions was the taking of the Nazarite vow. It's the vow that Samson took famously in the Old Testament. And the Nazarite vow uh, involved a lot of things, but it involved the complete abstinence from wine or beer and the no cutting of the hair. That's why Samson had this long hair. So what Hannah is promising when she says, no razor will ever be used on his head, she's saying, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you to accomplish your purpose and your mission in the world. And it's at this moment that Hannah's prayer changes. It changes from a me-centered prayer to a God-centered prayer. Hannah had been praying for a son all of these years, but in essence, 
Her prayer had been, God, give me a son to fulfill me, to fulfill me personally, to fulfill my role in culture, to keep me from being mocked by Peninnah and by others. Like, give me a son to fulfill me. But now her prayer has changed. It looks the same. It's the same prayer. She is still praying specifically for a son. But now it's not ultimately about her because as a Nazarite priest, what she is dedicating her son to be, all the things that a child, a son, would normally fulfill, he will not be able to fulfill in culture. As a Nazarite priest, this son um, will fill none of the personal cultural reasons for having a child in that culture. As a Nazarite priest, the child would take a vow of poverty and make no money for the family. He wouldn't have the resources to take care of her in her old age. He, he wouldn't be around to provide emotional support because at a very young age, he would be taken away to be trained for the priesthood. So her prayer has changed from a me-centered prayer to a God-centered prayer. Now it's not, give me a child for me, give me a son for me. Now it's, give me a son for you. The most fundamental change that will ever happen in your prayer life is when you go from me-centered prayers to God-centered prayers. When you read through the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of Paul, you begin to notice something. <laughs> and I think it took me a while to kind of realize what it was and, and to get my mind around it. You begin to notice that for Jesus and for Paul, None of the prayers that they prayed were me-centered prayers. All of them are God-centered prayers. All of them are focused on advancing the kingdom and accomplishing God's mission in the world. Even the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and teaches us to pray, a prayer that includes in it, give us this day our daily bread, is, is prayed within the context of May your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth, in Fairfax, in Paris, just as it is in heaven. Going from a me-centered prayer to a God-centered prayer doesn't necessarily change what you are praying for, but it always changes why you are praying for it. A prayer for a child can be a me-centered prayer or a God-centered prayer. A prayer for health can be a me-centered prayer or a God-centered prayer. A prayer for a home, a house, an apartment can be a me-centered prayer or a God-centered prayer. A prayer for a job, a vocation, a move can be a me-centered prayer or it can be a God-centered prayer. Now, God-centered prayers are not a spiritual manipulation technique to get God to do what you want him to do. Just like, oh, if that's the trick, then I will change all of my me-centered prayers 
to God-centered prayers and say, this is about the kingdom so that I might get what I wanted in the first place. Like, it's not a spiritual manipulation technique to get God to do what we want him to do. A God-centered prayer doesn't even guarantee that we will always get what we ask for. But it does guarantee that we will see God at work in our situation. It does guarantee that we will see manifestations of his grace. It does guarantee that we will see the God of the universe coming to bear in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through to advance the kingdom no matter what happens. And then lastly, Hannah experienced hope before God answered her prayer. And the order of that is really important, that she experienced hope before God answered her prayer. Look at verse 17 and following. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something. She hadn't been eating. She ate something for the first time. And her face, which had been downcast, was no longer downcast. And early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their home in Ramah. And Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Here's what I want you to notice. Even before Hannah conceives and gives birth to Samuel, we are told that her face is no longer downcast, and she has already begun to eat again. In other words, the hope came before the answer. The hope came before the answer. Why? Because Hannah's hope had shifted. There was this profound shift that had taken place. Her hope had shifted. Her hope was no longer rooted in whether or not she had a child. Her hope was rooted in being a part of what God was doing in this world, being a part of God's mission, being a part of God's kingdom advancing work. And that's what happens when your hope shifts from the outcome of your prayers, getting healthy, finding a job, getting a promotion, finding a house, finding a spouse, whatever it is, to the purpose of your prayer, joining with God in his kingdom mission in this world. You experience hope when that changes, you experience hope no matter what happens. That's why the hope can come before the answer. That's why the joy can come before the answer. That's why the peace can come before the answer. After Samuel is born, Hannah is faithful to her promise to dedicate Samuel to the Lord. And so she brings Samuel to Eli and she says, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman. Remember me? Remember me, the one that you thought was drunk here in the tabernacle? Remember me? I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for. And so now 
I give him to the Lord. And so now, the Lord has granted me what I asked for. So now, I give him to the Lord. I think about how many times the Lord grants us. Let me personalize this. I think about how many times the Lord has granted me what I ask for. And I was slow to take the step to give it to the Lord. Let me just ask you a question. What has God granted you? What has God given you that is now your possession, is now what you have, that he is saying, now I want you to dedicate that to me. You ask for this house, I want you to dedicate this. You ask for this job, I want you to dedicate this. You ask for this child, I want you to dedicate this. You ask for your health, I want you to dedicate that to me. What has God given you that he is saying, I want you to dedicate that to me? And so now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And then in chapter 3 we see God's plan for Samuel begin to take shape. And he calls Samuel in the middle of the night, this amazing thing where Samuel keeps saying, Eli is calling you, he keeps going into Eli and saying, what'd you say, Eli, you want me? And Eli's going, I didn't call you. And this happens multiple times. And finally, Eli goes, it's not me, it's the Lord. And Samuel realizes that God is calling him and Samuel says, Samuel says yes to his call. And chapter three ends with this. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, the words that he spoke were used by God in ways that had impact. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Think about that. Hannah prayed for a child having no idea that one day her child would become a prophet who would counsel a king out of whose lineage would come the Messiah who would save the world. All of this because of a God-centered prayer of a woman in the midst of incredible disappointment and pain and loss. Sometimes stuff happens in our life And it becomes really hard to connect the dots. Really hard to see how God would ever be able to take this mess, this pain, this loss, this hurt, and accomplish anything good out of it. 
And in those times, we are tempted to distance ourselves from God and to distance ourselves from the community of God. But of course, what we need to do is just the opposite. Just like Hannah, we need to be willing to lean in to God in those moments and pray prayers that are emotionally vulnerable, prayers that are God-centered rather than me-centered, and be willing to shift our hope from the outcome of our prayers to the God who is at work accomplishing his purposes regardless of the outcome. Those are the kind of prayers that brings heaven to earth, that brings heaven to Fairfax, that brings heaven to Paris, that brings heaven to your family and your neighborhood and changes the world. God. You are such a faithful God. And as we read the story of Hannah and think about the change that took place in her prayer life, where the prayer really did not change, but the the motive behind the prayer radically changed. And out of that, you used her pain and her hurt and her loss and her confusion to change the world. Lord, we give you thanks for Hannah. We give you thanks for the whole chorus of individuals throughout the narrative of Scripture who were willing to do the same thing, to move from me-centered prayers to God-centered prayers, to allow you to take whatever it was that you entrusted to their care and to use it to advance this kingdom to redeem and restore the world. And Lord, we pray that that our prayers would reflect that and we pray that you would use us and everything that you have entrusted to us to do the same. We know that you are a God who redeems everything. That you are a God who redeemed the worst possible thing that could have happened in the history of the world, the putting to death of the Son of God, and you redeem that in a way to bring wholeness and redemption and restoration into the world. And so why would we not trust our brokenness and hurt and pain to you? In the name of Christ we pray. And all of God's people said, amen.